Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in once again to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, do us a favor. In fact, do yourself a favor. Get on iTunes, leave us a review and a rating, and make it a five-star rating. Why? Because if you're listening to this podcast, you really do like it, and we certainly do appreciate it. Also want to remind you guys, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Hazard Ground or at Hazard Ground Podcast. And then finally, make sure you go to our webpage, hazardground.com. And when you get there, click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Once you get to Amazon, do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever you need to buy, whether it's for work, for school, for business, whatever it is, do your normal shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate it back to some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. In fact, your purchases through Amazon have led us to make our first donation back to one of the charities you've heard here, MVP Merging Vets and Players. We're so proud of that and so thankful that you guys have been able to help out Merging Vets and Players and help us out along the way. So keep the Amazon shopping coming and make sure you're doing it through HazardGround.com. Also check out the rest of our sponsors on our webpage, HazardGround.com. There's a tab there with the sponsors. Support them. You're supporting us. You're supporting vets. It's the best way to help out vets without ever having to leave your couch, do all your shopping on our sponsors homepage right there. So again, Amazon banner in the middle of hazardground.com and our sponsors tab. And as always, we thank you guys so much for your support of the podcast. Now on to this week's episode. Very special guest joining us this week. He's a former U.S. Army sergeant, a member of the National Wrestling Hall of Fame, and a five-time Ultimate Fighting Championship title holder. He is also one of the co-founders of a veterans organization called Merging Vets and Players, where he is continuing to enrich and enhance the lives of veterans all across America. It is Randy Couture joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Randy, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay, so uh, just an incredible story. Uh, everybody knows who you are, and listeners to this podcast are probably so jacked to hear you uh, tell your story. But we always like to start back at the beginning and how you got into the service and why. Um, you know, my uh, father and my uncle both served in the Navy. My sister and I chose to go in the Army. Uh, it was a, uh, I was like everybody else, 18 years old, trying trying to find a way to get to college. Didn't really get any scholarship offers or anything like that. Sold my car, uh, managed to to walk on at at uh, Washington State. Uh, they were the only Division One wrestling program in the state of Washington at that time. Title Nine had basically been decimating college programs across the country. Uh, didn't make the varsity team. Uh, came home for Thanksgiving and. Uh, uh, and saw the family and it was about an eight hour bus ride across the state. And, uh, about three weeks later, my girlfriend for, you know, for most of my senior year calls me and says, Hey, I'm, I'm pregnant. <laughs> uh, showstopper. Yeah. So, uh, you know, finished out that semester and then, and went, went and saw a recruiter and, you know, took the ASVAB scored, scored well. And, and, uh, he said, well, you're pretty much qualified for whatever you want to do, but they're given, uh, $5,000 enlistment bonus uh, if you want to go to air traffic control school. You know, Reagan had just fired all uh, all those air traffic controllers in the civilian world, and all those military guys got out and took those civilian jobs. So they had a void in, in Army ATC, and, and uh, $5,000 was a lot of money to me at that time with a new kid on the way and, and uh, you know, recently gotten married. And so I, I joined, joined the Army, and uh, – Signed up originally for four years, um, which then went ahead to you know two years in in the reserves. After um, got in the middle of you know, going to AIT and all that stuff, my first duty station was Hanau, West Germany, and uh, stationed in a small concern, right in the heart of the Fulda Gap in the peak of the Cold War. So there was about I don't know five million soldiers in Central Europe at that time. Huge sports programs. Obviously, we were concerned that the Russians were going to come across the border and invade Central Europe at that time, and that never happened. But uh, it's been, I ended up wrestling, and they're back up on a wrestling mat. 
which I never expected. I kind of thought wrestling would, was you know, a foregone conclusion with a new family on the way, but uh, you know, things opened up and, and I ended up winning the U.S. Army Europe Championship uh, a couple times and got a chance to try out for the All Army Wrestling Team. Uh, wow. Which is, you know, by the time I, I left Germany after three years there, I had my second kid. My daughter was born there in Frankfurt and uh, ended up winning a couple of inter-service championships, which qualified me for the Olympics in the uh, the Olympic trials. Wow. Ended up being a, a soldier, you know, in 1988, I ended up being an alternate on the 88 Olympic team as a soldier. Um, so, you know, all these college coaches are like, well, who the hell was that kid? I've never seen him before. <laughs> and the phone started ringing and, you know, I had to decide whether I was going to stay the course and continue doing what I was doing as a soldier or get out and, and take a scholarship offer. And uh, my coach encouraged me to, to really consider getting out, ETSing and, and uh, taking a scholarship. And, and he, he kind of pushed me towards Oklahoma State as, you know, he had been in the Hall of Fame there and knew what an amazing program that was. And I took that option, got out of the service in 88 and, and rolled from Fort Campbell, Kentucky into into Stillwater, Oklahoma for, for uh, college that's, and uh, at 25 years old. That's unreal. So, uh, so let's back up for a second, Randy. Hang on. So um, when – when you decided you were going to sign up, any objections from your family? I mean, was your girlfriend at the time um, with a baby um, on the way? Was she all for it, or were there any concerns? You know, I think uh, she she wasn't concerned. Obviously, there was no war going on at that time. You know, there wasn't anything going on. My dad was kind of against it, oddly enough. But I think he was more against the whole thing. He's like, you know, you don't have to marry this girl, you, you know. I don't know about your decision to, you know, to join the service. You have other options. My mom wanted me to stay in college, uh, but I just didn't see how that was going to work, you know, without a, a huge amount of support from them, which, you know, they don't have. And I'd already sold my car to go to college in the first place. So um, I just didn't see how that was going to work. How I was going to be able to support a family and, and, and stay in school. It just wasn't going to happen. So we, uh, you know, being an honorary stubborn independent cuss that i was and this was the way i was going to get it done and, and and it just worked out it would turn out to be the right decision for me now you, you obviously were an athletic person as a wrestler were you physically and mentally prepared for basic and ait uh yeah i i, I mean they were honestly they, they weren't i didn't find them that challenging um the PT test wasn't wasn't that big a deal you know everything compared to a wrestling practice you know paled in comparison sure. to be honest so you know the physicality you know that was this is before combatives and right, a lot yeah. of the things <laughs> that the army has now i mean we we're still doing you know butt strokes and bayonets so it was it was a different <laughs> deal and uh, um so i you know i didn't find it terribly challenging and in, in uh in the physical sense so it was you know still lack of sleep and all the things that you know you're being programmed for uh I felt very comfortable. I was one of those guys that everything in my room had its place. And so, you know, learning how to roll my socks and my underwear in a particular way and, and set all that stuff up was uh, something that appealed to me and that appealed to the way I'm wired. So uh, it worked well for me. All right. So while you're on active duty, you're in Germany. G give me the kind of the details of the transaction about the wrestling thing. I mean, it, it seems to come fairly out of the blue, correct? Yeah, I, I roll into uh, – Flegel Horse Concern is the 187th Air Traffic Control Company there. And, of course, they had the gym, you know, the, the base gym on the little concern. So I, I was training, you know, walk across the street to from the barracks to, to the gym uh, and was training over there. And this lieutenant said, hey, you know, this was before I had cauliflower ear. Uh, and this goes, hey, you wrestled? And, and it wasn't like I had the, the telltale ears at that time. I didn't get those till I tried out for the Army team. But uh, – I said, yeah, I wrestled in high school. He said, well, come on, you want to wrestle? And basically, he was the the base wrestling coach. Um, started taking me to German club team practices, and then every weekend he'd check out a van, and we'd all, you know, a bunch of us would pile in the van, and we'd go to a different base and and wrestle in a tournament. Uh, ultimately, ended up wrestling for the fifth core championship, and and ended up winning that, and then. 
getting a chance to wrestle for the U.S. Army Europe Championship. And and that that's what ultimately got me noticed by Coach Floyd Winter, the All-Army coach. Uh, we ended up in the finals in both the freestyle and the Greco, and he gave me a shot to come back and, and try it out, basically. It's a three-week trial process um, for the All-Army wrestling team, and basically you're sent TDY. We were sent to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey, Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a basic training post, and they put the all, you know all the guys trying out for the all army wrestling team in a in a basic training training facility in a in a quad basically, and so you can imagine the shit that went on there right. uh, with a bunch of soldiers on TDY trying to make make the all army wrestling team. So <laughs> it was a, it was a it was pretty fun. It's uh, it's funny you mentioned Fort Dix, not to date you or anything, but you know it was as you said it was a basic training post. Now it's like pushing thousands of soldiers, you know, on deployment all year long. Fort Dix, it's bigger now than it's ever been before. Yeah, it's a my, joint. It's a joint base. Yeah, now. my last deployment was at a Fort Di- at Fort Dix, so uh, it's a, it's a whole different world over there now. Um, yeah. So let me ask you about wrestling and army life. Like, were you okay with army life? Did you have a tough transition? I'm just trying to find where wrestling, you know, fit in with everything else because obviously it takes you to the rest of your career. But it, was it one of those things where you needed something in your army life to fill time? And thankfully, this was there. Well, I was trained as an air traffic controller and working in an air traffic control unit, both the tactical and fixed unit at the 187th Air Traffic Control Company at Polygar Horse. So we, we had a fixed mission and, and a tactical mission. We, we had to kind of split duty. Uh, and, you know, at that time they were doing a lot of reforger exercises, again, practicing, playing, playing war, basically. You know, if the Russians come across, this is probably where they're coming setting up LZs and doing all this stuff, setting up forward air, airfields for for helicopters to, to combat the Russians if they should do that, basically playing war games. And that was my main job in the Army, but then I started becoming more successful, winning championships and, and moving up the ladder, uh, I think ultimately making the All-Army team that first year in 1985 and then going to Pensacola for the Inter-Service Championship and winning a medal at Inter-Service Championships really kind of changed things. It, kept me TUI for six months of the year, every year from then on for the, for the last four years of my enlistment. How supportive um, was your command of that? Uh, my command in Germany loved it. He was a West Point guy and he just thought it was the greatest thing ever. That's awesome. Um, and then I rolled in, I extended my enlistment for two more years, basically stay active duty and, and continue wrestling for the team. And I rolled into uh CONUS, you know, each you know, PCS to Fort Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and moved into a different unit. There it was all tactical. There was no fixed base. There it was a, a complete tactical ATC unit, and the commander there wasn't having it. He was like, "I don't give a shit what you did and how many medals you won. You were trained as an air traffic controller. We spent a lot of money to do that. By God, you're going to be an air traffic controller." And uh, so. Coach Winter had to go to DOD basically and get me reassigned to a different unit uh, or lose me. You know, I would have just stayed in. He wasn't going to release me TDY to continue to wrestle. And I'd already won a couple championships by that time and was ranked nationally. So he definitely wanted to keep me on the team. Um, so he kind of had to pull some springs at DOD and get me reassigned to the garrison unit. Now, were you, the, first. were you the type of guy who was like, look, he's not going to let me do it. If he doesn't let me do it, it doesn't happen, and the chips will fall where they may? Or were you fighting for, hey, I want to keep wrestling? Well, obviously, I, I wanted to keep wrestling. Uh, you know, I, I was spending six, eight months of, of the year uh, away, you know, TDY with the team training wherever we were training. We trained that first year at Port Dix, and then the next two years we were at West Point in their facilities uh, and then we got located at Fort Campbell, which was actually where I was stationed. So, was you know, I would have been able to go to training camp every single day and sleep in my own bed and be with my family. So that was a, a great scenario for me for those last two years on the team. And um, uh, and my commander didn't want to let me go. And, and obviously, coach coach wasn't going to – he wasn't going to take that land down. He'd spend a lot of time, you know, kind of getting me trained up and, and operating at that level. And and so he got me reassigned, and uh, I worked for the sports department, basically, in, in the garrison unit in 101st, and setting up intramural sports and, and engraving trophies and, and crap like that in between practices. So, um, yeah, it worked out. 
Certainly did. You mentioned your family. Uh, how was your wife at the time and your kids being TDY for that long? I mean, um, that was a challenge, especially when yeah. I was in Germany. So I would send them home to Seattle uh, when I would leave TDY, usually in January. Army camp and trials were usually in January. So rather than leave them stranded for six months in Europe by themselves, sure, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I would put them on a plane and fly them home to Seattle, and they'd spend the time. You know, of course, our, our our parents were happy to see the kids and happy to have them in the house and all of that. And and then she would travel to some of the matches and, and come stay with me on base on occasion as well. So um, but it was a challenge for sure. All right. So let's go back to that decision point where you had to stay in or get out and go to college. You mentioned that your coach said, hey, I think you should take these offers. If, if your coach had said the opposite, do you think you would have done the opposite? If he would have said I, to I you, think, kind of, I think you should stay in, I don't really know if this is for you, you made a commitment, you know, kind of deal. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think I, I certainly could have been influenced that way. I, You know, I was achieving my goals, working towards making that Olympic team, and, and honestly, he, he was a very important part of that. I think while I was in the service during those years on the Army wrestling team, I learned that I could compete on the international stage at the international level. I think I developed the confidence to, to be able to go out there and, you know, it was from a small town and North of Seattle, uh, it was a, it was a big step up. Um, so, you know, I think he could have influenced me that way, but I, I think, you know, I think, uh, his heart was in the right place. Uh, even though, you know, he was going to have to find a way to, re- you know, to replace me in the lineup. I, you know, there were a lot of other guys that were, that we're ready to wrestle there, so uh, it worked out. Before we get to to Oklahoma State and where you wrestled there, um, best part about the Army wrestling team? What do you take away from that as the most? Those friends, those those guys that I sweat sweated with and bled with every single day, and you know we traveled to all the national tournaments and the national camps, and you know those those, those that was family. Those were the guys that I spent an inordinate amount of time with. Uh, you know, living in open bay barracks and, and training twice a day, uh, trying, you know, iron sharpens iron. We were trying to make each other better and push each other to the max. And, you know, I got my cauliflower ears from, from wrestling guys mm-hmm. on that team. Uh, we beat the dog snot out of each other, and, <laughs> and that was the way it was. You still talk to some of them? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Did they think back then you would end up being the Randy Couture they know today? No, we, we laugh about it. I mean, they remember when I was riding, a, you know, riding a ten-speed to and from base, uh, you know, and, and to practice all the time, and driving a a little Ford Escort. Uh, you know, that was that was my my hoopty ride back then. Um, so they, you know, the, they they know the real me. They they don't they know who this natural character is that popped up in MMA. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Okay, so let's get forward to Oklahoma State. You, you land there now. I mean, you have two kids at this time, and you're going to school on a wrestling scholarship. What are you doing to take care of them? Um, well, I was fortunate. I had the GI Bill, right? Um, okay, which, which helped. Yep. Yeah, um, obviously. And and the college the college program and the college coaches loved that because that didn't count against their equivalency and their scholarships either. Ah, so yeah. that was money they could spend on somebody else to get somebody else in the lineup as well. Uh, so that was a big plus for them. Um, my, my wife worked on, on campus and, and, you know, we lived in a real small little house just off campus and the kids, uh, you know, Ryan went, went to first, you know, first grade there in Stillwater, started wrestling there for a little while, uh, while we were there through the YMCA, but, uh, the kids have fond memories of, of, uh, Stillwater and it was really cool this June when I, I got inducted into the Hall of Fame there to take all of them back and mm-hmm. kind of see campus, see how much has changed and, and just be back in Stillwater it was a really, really cool experience, uh, for the family. Did it ever bother you being 25 and in college? No, uh, I never thought about it at all. Uh, and it was funny, uh, my junior year and I'm going on 28, 29 years old and, um, wrestling one of the top schools, Penn state. And they have been a really sure, old gymnasium yeah. and the bleachers come right down to the mats in this old gym. And I was a 190 pounder wrestling in one of the later matches this is before they started shuffling the weight classes like they do now. And, uh, and it was a close duel. We were the, I think the number 
one and number three ranked teams in the country at that time. So it was a packed house. And I took this kid down on the edge of the mat and this guy in the third row yelled, Hey, don't let that old man do that to you. <laughs> and I, I looked up at him and I smiled and they all started laughing. <laughs> and then I commenced to really kicking the shit out of this poor kid from Penn state because of it. But, uh, uh, it was a hilarious moment. That's pretty funny. That's a great anecdote right there. Um, okay. So, how does your college career end and how do you know what's next? I know you mentioned the Olympic trials and everything else, but um, did you think while you were in college, that was a realistic possibility still? Uh, absolutely. Still wrestling on the national team, you know, really, you know, like I said, I, I think I developed the confidence to compete on the international stage at Oklahoma state. But I think I learned that at Oklahoma state was how to win and then win at that level. I mean, I'd, training partners like Kenny Monday and, and, you know, watching John Smith, who ultimately became my coach by the time I was a senior, you know, win Olympic medals and, and the level of wrestling and wrestlers that were coming through that program and training around in and around that program was literally amazing. Some of the best wrestlers that we've ever produced and as a country. And, and so I was definitely in the right place uh, to make the Olympic team and, and really kind of start winning on that international stage. Uh, you know, it didn't work out that way. Uh, you know, I ended up in the finals of the NCAA tournament twice, my junior and my senior year, and ended up losing in those matches. And you know, obviously devastated uh, to, to be in you know the biggest matches of my life at that point and 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 not win. Um, and then roll into the '92 and the '96 trials as the number one guy in my weight class in Greco. And, and had beaten world champions and Olympic medalists and everyone expected me to make the team, especially those two teams. And again, managed to come up short in the final trial and not make the team. It was the alternate, um, in the 92 and the 96 games. And, uh, so again, devastated, you know, wasn't sure, especially after 96, this is when I, we'd moved, I graduated and we'd moved to Oregon State and I was coaching at Oregon State and wrestling you know, for the national team still as the assistant coach there. And, and you know, especially 96, you know, I just felt like that was my time. I'd really come into my own and uh, I think I'd, I'd won you know, three national titles in Greco at that point and, and uh, been the outstanding wrestler, Pan Am Games champ, a bunch of things. And and so it felt like it was my time and I managed to come up short. Um, so then the question was, okay, now what, you know, am I going right. to continue and chase, you know, another quadranium, another four years of training to, to try and make the team again, or, or what, what am I going to do? And, and, uh, one of my athletes in, in late in the summer in 96, uh, we all kind of lived in the same apartment complex, a few of the older guys. And one of the guys brought this tape over this VHS tape and said, Oh man, you got to check this out. And we watched this video of, of these guys fighting and it happened to be a, an early UFC and uh, Don Fry uh, was fighting on that, on that video. And he was one of my teammates at Oklahoma state. So I was immediately intrigued. Here's this guy I knew, I knew really well fighting in this sport in this cage. And I was like, what the hell? This is crazy. Uh, but really cool. And, uh, so later, you know, I met a friend who who uh, was a huge wrestling fan, and and he's like, "Oh man, you should do that." You saw Coleman, did you see uh, Fry? And he's like, "Yeah, I saw a video of that." And he said, "Man, you should try that." And I'm like, "I don't know about that." And he's like, "No, I know how to get the application, and I'll send it in for you, and and, and you should give that a try." And so he he did that. He went home and filled out an application and sent it in to to the powers that be at the UFC at that time. And they, uh, they came back like, ah, we want more exotic martial artists. You know, our champions have wrestler already. You know, we don't want any more wrestlers right now. And, but we'll put you on our alternate list. And this was in December of 96. And then that seems to be a running the, theme for you, unfortunately. Yeah. The alternate uh, list. Know, <laughs> things, things work out the way they work out, right? I, right. I, uh, that next spring, I was getting ready to go represent the U.S. and Puerto Rico at the Pan Am Championships. And, and, uh, they called me up and they said, Hey, we got a spot in this tournament in three weeks. You still want to fight? You're on our alternate list. And I'm like, well, I'm in shape. Yeah, I'll, I'll fight. So 
three weeks later, I was in my very first UFC, UFC 13, and kind of brushed his history from there. The All right. head coach at uh, head coach at Oregon State wasn't keen on the fighting. He thought it was bad for wrestling. He just thought it was, you know, he thought it was crazy, frankly. And so he forced me basically to make a uh, make a decision: was I going to be a wrestling coach, or was I going to be a fighter? And uh, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer. They paid me more for that one fight than he paid me for the whole year. So oh, that was going to so, be my question: what was the, what was the yeah. compensation like? Yeah. So um, you know, I, although I was I was kind of angry that he was forcing me to make a decision, it was it was you know, looking back, I'm glad he did that, honestly. Um, because I would have tried to juggle it all. And, and, you know, as I had been going through college, you know, on, on, you know, on a scholarship and, and on, a, on one of the best wrestling teams in four years of college and still juggling, you know, wife and two kids and all this other stuff, I would have tried to continue to juggle all that stuff, you know, fighting and coaching and, and my family and all those other things. So him forcing me to kind of make a decision was the best thing for me, honestly. All right. Um, let me ask you a couple of things here real quick. The guy you saw on the tape that wrestled with you, did you ever mm-hmm. beat him in a wrestling match? Actually, we had to wrestle each other. My freshman year was his senior year. Uh, he transferred from Arizona State. He couldn't make the team at Arizona State. and He didn't want to miss out on his last opportunity to go to the national tournament. And He had been wrestling heavyweight for us all year long. And then uh, right before the, the – conference championships the big eight championships uh they brought this freshman kid out of red shirt and that kid took his spot at heavyweight beat him in the wrestle off and took his spot so now he was kind of pissed off that he was going to miss his senior opportunity at the national tournament so he you know he wasn't a big heavyweight so he talked the coach into letting him challenge me uh for my spot at 190 so we ended up having to wrestle off a week before the Big Eight Championships, which isn't an optimum situation. You know, I'm I'm training and focused on going in there and, and, and qualifying my weight class for the for the nationals through the conference championship. And here I now I have to worry about my spot on the team. And you know, I, I kind of took it out on him, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, it, it had to be a best of you know best of three series. Mm-hmm. But he had to win that first match to get the second match, and uh, I just I I kind of put the hammer down on him in in that match. Well, and the only reason uh, I asked that is because I was wondering if you saw him do it. You're like, well, I could beat that guy. I can do this kind of thing. Was that like, a, you know, a key to you that yeah, was just, maybe yeah, had a it was shot? Intriguing. It's like, oh man, I know this guy. I wrestled this guy, and you know, he, he's a great guy. And he's a good friend. He was one of the only other guys on the team. You know, him and Chris Barnes were the only other two guys on the team that were married. And uh, so we, you know, we spent an inordinate amount of our free time together with our families. And uh, so I knew him very, very well and was immediately intrigued by the sport, by what they were doing in the cage and how they were competing. And I just saw the direct application of years of wrestling training uh, in the sport and just made sense. Right. Now, uh, let me ask you. There's wrestling, but then there's mixed martial arts. While you have a background in wrestling, that's not jujitsu, it's not Muay Thai, and it's not, you know, hand-to-hand combat. Like, you're not throwing punches in wrestling. So for you to step into the ring, were you worried that you didn't have any of these skills? Well, you know, it was a little bit different back then in the early days of the UFC. Guys were out to prove that their martial arts style or their background was the best fighting style. You know, that's was Hoist Grace, you know, Hoist Gracie got right, in to right. prove the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu was the best. The you know, Dan Severn, Don Fry, Mark Coleman were out to prove what wrestlers were all about and that wrestlers were the best combative sports athletes out there. And so I was I was on that on that uh bandwagon as well. I was like, yeah, here's what wrestlers are about. Here's the kind of conditioning and men, you know, mental state that we bring to fighting. We we have a very strong mindset and uh I realized very quickly uh, in that tournament that I had a whole bunch of other stuff to learn. I needed to, you know, really learn some, some form of striking and figure out what these jujitsu guys were doing, laying on their backs and, and, you know, catching guys in submission holds and choke holds and stuff. So I realized quickly I had a lot to learn and got about, you know, 
checking my ego and putting myself in those circumstances, in those situations where I was going to get punched and I was going to get tapped out. I saw that as the only way I was going to get better. I was going to learn those skills. And, you know, it didn't matter how many national championships you won in wrestling. If you didn't learn this other stuff, somebody was going to point that shit out to you in a hurry. Yeah, uh, that's a trial by fire, if you will. By the way, what did, what did your wife and your family say when you wanted to do this? Uh, they were uh, – <laughs> They thought I was crazy. Yeah, my mom especially was concerned. You know, I, it was the one sport back in the day that she told me I couldn't do was boxing. It was the Linwood Elks Boxing Club. And I worked at the Elks Club as a busboy. And so I knew the boxing program was going on there. And I would sneak away and do and, and go to some of the boxing practices. And she found out about it. And she's like, uh-uh, you can play football. You can do whatever you want, but you are not boxing. And I'm like, okay, she kind of made me quit. So uh, now we joke about it. She's like, I should have just let you box back then. You would have got it out of your system. But, you know, it's work funny. out the way they work out. Yeah. All right. So at this point in your career, like just to kind of reflect back, the Army's far gone. But what from the Army do you still have with you at this point in time? I have those, all those guys I trained with and was still friends with all of them. One of my teammates moved up and became the new head coach for the program. They created the WCAP program, world-class athletes program for the, for the army service. And so they were recruiting out, you know, literally reaching out and recruiting a lot of athletes, uh, to come into the service and wrestle for the program as part of the WCAP program. So these, as far as Greco training partners, they still had a great group of guys and, uh, you know, the the program at Oklahoma State was more of a freestyle program. John Smith, Kenny Monday, all those historic wrestlers that came through that program were all freestyle guys. They weren't Greco guys. There weren't many Greco guys around. So I still had a ton of friends that were in the Army that were still wrestling for the Army. And it was great for me to go back. You know, the first time I was at, at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, was going down and training with the guys even though I was in college, training with the with the uh, all army wrestling team and and getting ready for the national tournament in Greco, so I uh, still had a ton of friends there and was still you know very connected to all those guys. You know, Randy, we joked about it before with the alternate thing, but you know, you seem to have. I don't want to say you, you seem to have come up short. I don't want to say you failed because you certainly didn't fail, but you seem to have come up short, even going all the way back to your first attempt at college wrestling. You know, the national team and everything else. Was any of that fuel? for the fire to say, now I'm going to go be a, a UFC champion? You know, I, I, I entered that first fight on a, literally on a whim, you know, didn't expect them to call. I, you know, I, like I said, my friend turned in the application for me and, and they put me on an alternate list. So it was a surprise, uh, when they called and asked me if I wanted to fight and, and I literally did it on a whim on three weeks notice on a whim. And, Obviously, it went well. I ended up winning the, the heavyweight tournament. I fought twice at night. And then, of course, they said, hey, we want you to fight in the super fight, you know, in three months in, in October. And uh, so now I'm going back to the head coach who's already kind of irritated that I've done this, and, you know, and saying, hey, uh, I, I need to take some time off. I need to find a boxing coach because this kid they want me to fight next is a great boxer. He's tearing people up. If I don't train in some boxing, I'm going to get my head knocked off. And, uh that was when you know the coach kind of said, you know, "All right, well, that's great, but we got our athletes coming back into town. What are you going to do? Are you, you going to be a boxing coach or a boxing, uh, you know, fighter or, or a wrestling coach?" And uh, kind of forced me to make a decision. And uh, I spent about three weeks down at Hermosa Beach Boxing Works, training with Tony and Scott and the guys there to get up to speed on facing a southpaw like Vitor Belfort in my second UFC and, and dealing with this, you know, young, phenomenal Brazilian black belt who was literally punching everybody's lights out in, in under two minutes. Uh, uh, spent a bunch of time boxing every single day and trying to figure out footwork and how to punch and be punched and all these things I'd never done before. Um, and uh, it was an interesting process for sure. So... Uh, <laughs> In that fight, I mean, you end up defeating Vitor Belfort in, in that fight. Did you feel like going into it, you were ready for it? I did. Um, I, I was just coming off of the world championships in wrestling in Greco, and uh, that was uh, 
you know, in, in 97, that was the highest I had placed at the world's, I placed ninth in that world championship in Greco. So I was in great shape, great wrestling shape. Uh, as I said, I'd spent a few weeks in California, uh, training in boxing and, and kind of getting up to speed in boxing. My trainer and, and manager at the time was Rico Ciparelli and Rico just had this, you know, I don't know, he, he had a very uncommon knowledge of how wrestling fit together in fighting situations. He was, he was a brilliant guy, very, very good wrestler himself, wrestled at Iowa and was a national champion in Iowa. And, and, and so guys like me and Henderson and, and Linlin, he, he was our first kind of entrance into mixed martial arts and kind of took that same mentality of wrestling where we studied our opponents and, and looked at footage and tried to figure out a game plan to go out and put ourselves in the best position to win was all about how he operated. So it fit great. Um, and you know, he, he's like, look at this guy, he said, look what he's doing. He starts every combination with his left hand first. He's very straightforward. Nobody's using any lateral movement. That's how he's catching all these guys. If you use some lateral movement circle away from his left hand, and find a way to close the distance and get your hands on this guy. If you make this guy wrestle you, he can't stay with it. There's no way. Uh, I've watched him. We watched him progress. We watched, you know, his, his last four fights. And he just said, if you make this guy wrestle, he's gonna he's gonna blow up. He's gonna get tired, and there's no way he can stay with you. And that's exactly how it turned out. I mean, to the letter. So I, you know, told my mom, this is the game plan. This is what we're gonna do. And and you know. So then she starts scratching her head after she sees that unfold and realizes, well, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe there's more to this than than she originally thought. So, your your I guess it's technically your fourth professional fight, but I mean you're you're against Maurice Smith. You win your first title belt there, correct? Yeah. The, so the, what was uh, that like? Fight, the super fight put me in for for a shot at the heavyweight championship, and the winner of that Vitor fight was going to get that shot and i you know never been to japan and um it was you know a whole different animal for here i am got in this on a whim you know three months ago and now they're saying oh yeah you're gonna fight for the world championship in in uh four months and i'm like holy crap what just happened and now i'm you know i'm going flying to tokyo in december uh we, we fought in yokohama and spent a week over there kind of getting acclimated to the time change and figuring out what it was all about and, and, uh, and studied again, studied footage of, of Mo Smith, watched him, you know, beat up Mark Coleman and take, take Mark's title and, uh, you know, really kind of had an idea what to expect. Here's a guy that had, you know, 17 years kickboxing experience, wasn't, wasn't, uh, a wrestler had a wrestling background, but he'd been working a lot with Frank Shamrock and they've been trading information. Frank was teaching him about ground skills and how to survive on the ground. And he was teaching Frank how to, how to kickbox and, and use Mo's expertise as a kickboxer. So I felt like this guy was going to try to kick me and I just trained every time that he picked his foot up, I was going to take him down. And, uh, back then, obviously it was different. It wasn't five minute rounds like it is now. It right. Was a, yeah. It was a 15 minute go. And then if there was no winner determined after the 15 minutes, then he did two, uh, overtime periods of three minutes each, uh, for a total of 21 minutes. That's unreal. And, uh, <laughs> oh, so we, you know, we went the, uh, went the entire distance, but every time he tried to kick me, I, I, Followed through with a with a single or a double and and put him on his back and then you know managed to keep him there the entire fight. Um, probably wasn't the most exciting fight, but mm -hmm. the Japanese crowd, you know, they're very in tune with the tactics and the technique. It, it, you know, a little less about the sensation. The American fans probably would have been booing and you know trying to get more of a brawl instigated. That that's kind of the style the Americans fan like. But the Japanese, they like the tactical technical fights. Um sure. and they seem to be totally into it. There was twenty nineteen or twenty thousand people in that arena and, and there were times when you could hear a pin drop in that place. It was amazing. Uh you could certainly hear my my wife at the time screaming over the entire crowd. <laughs> Uh, which was hilarious. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, so you get the belt. You get to put that belt around your waist. After all the other times coming up short, what's that feeling like? Uh, it, it was overwhelming. Yeah, And again, 
you start to think about the journey that you've been on and the time, the setbacks and the times you failed or, and, and didn't, uh, didn't achieve what you'd set out to achieve. And, and then here I am, you know, using all those same lessons and all that stuff that I, uh, you know, waded through and, and managed to survive, uh, and applied them here and, and was successful. So it was, it was overwhelming for sure. I'm not going to chronicle your entire fight career, just take way too long, but you actually lose your first fight in the next fight you have. And so quickly the belt goes away. And I mean, you know, and then you, when you start to get into this fight after fight, actually, I mean, I, uh, um, I, I took a little hiatus. They wanted me to fight Coleman, mm-hmm. um, which I was okay with. Um, and I, I knew, you know, with all the cross training I'd been doing, I knew the first time I ran into another wrestler, it was it was going to be a much more challenging fight. I wasn't going to be able to rely solely on my wrestling background to put me in positions to win. And I had a bit of a contract rhubarb with with uh, Bob Meyerowitz and the guys that owned the company back then. Um, and so I took a, a break. I uh, they basically said, "Well, we want you to fight Coleman, but you know, we can't pay you what what." we're supposed to pay you what this contract says. We just can't afford to do that. And, and I'm like, well, I'm ready to fight, but you know, we got a contract. It's, we spent hours and hours negotiating this contract. Why would we not honor that? And so they said, well, you choose not to defend your title. Then we're going to strip you. And, uh, you know, and that's what started the heavyweight tournament, uh, that boss Rudin ended up fighting in and, and winning. Uh, but he fought Kevin Randleman in that, um, Coleman actually left and, and went to uh, Japan and started fighting in Pride oh, at wow. that time. And I took about a year, a little over a year off uh, and tried to make the 2000, uh, the Sydney Games, the team the team for the Olympics in, in 2000. Why did you keep going back to the Olympics? What, was it just about the America that representing your country or was there just a, a drive to be on that team? Yeah, it was just a goal that I had set that I hadn't accomplished and, and – you know, I realized in 96, the chances of going another four years uh, and making the team probably, you know, that that window was closing. But here I was fighting, which which was a surprise, uh, making decent money, supporting the family, which freed me up from my coaching duties. I, I could train full time, basically. So if I wasn't training for a wrestling tournament and, you know, represent the U.S. or or going to the nationals, then I was training for a fight. It allowed me to to be a professional athlete and train year round and, and not have to worry about supporting the family, uh, and the, and the funds and all that stuff. So it it was actually a a good deal. And, uh, I was still winning, uh, still winning on the wrestling mat. Um, so, you know, at 99, I won another national title in, in Greco and, and you know, was was again, I wasn't probably the favorite, but uh, was still one of the top guys in my weight. And uh, going into the 2000 trials, I mean, throughout your career, your your MMA career, you had numerous battles against Vitor Belfort. Uh, you you fought Chuck Liddell plenty of times. You know uh, Brock Lesnar, some of the biggest names in the sport. Uh, you know when when you win or you lose in that professional world, is it any different than when you were an amateur? Um, no, I don't think it is any different. I think your spirit, your, your, your passion for the sport is, is what drives you and what, you know, forces you to make the sacrifices you need to make, whether you're getting paid or, or, or you're just doing it because it's what you love to do. Either way, that's what it's about. And so winning or losing still feels the same, uh, regardless. It's never about the paycheck. And I try to talk to fighters about that. And if you're doing this just because you want to get a paycheck, then this is a tough way to make a living. <laughs> you are probably you are probably in this for the wrong reasons, right? Uh, so yeah, I, and again, I you know I think those losses, those setbacks, uh, were important in my development, both as a human and as an athlete. And uh, they set me up for the volatility that I signed up for when I started fighting. It's a very up and down sport. It takes one mistake, you know, and talk about, you know, my record is, you know, 19 and 11. And uh, means, uh, I've, I've certainly lost my share of fights and, uh, everyone is like, Oh my gosh, you won six world championships. I'm like, yeah, that means I lost it at least five times. Asshole. What do you think? 
that, that is a fact that you can say. It just again, I don't mean to laugh, but when you put it that way, yes, there, there is, there yes, is, uh, you know. And again, I, you know, I don't, I don't think you measure a person's character by how they are when they win all the time. Sure, no, the absolutely. True measure of their character is, is how they deal with adversity. And I, you know, certainly have had my share of adversity both as a kid and then uh, you know on the wrestling mat. And those those adversities prepared me well for for what fighting was you mentioned last year obviously you were you were honored by the wrestling hall of fame inducted last year uh in 2018 uh, when that happened when you get that phone call that hey randy guitar we want to put you in the, in the wrestling hall of fame is that validation is that you know just oh my god i can't believe this is happening give me kind of the range of emotions you're feeling well certainly uh a huge honor um uh, and, I, you know, they do a little video vignette of each of the honorees for, for that year's class. And so they came to the house in Vegas and, and talked to me about, you know, my journey. And and, and I was inducted as an outstanding American, um, which is a huge honor. Obviously, they're recognizing me for all the other stuff that I've been doing outside of the cage or mm-hmm. off the mat. We're going to get to um, that in a minute. Just, you know, don't, don't and, go too uh, far down the road. And so that, that was, you know, obviously a huge honor. But, I, you know, I had to be honest. I said, say in my video vignette, I'm like, you know, I would have loved to have been put up on these walls in, in the Hall of Fame for wrestling, for winning, you know, a world championship or winning an Olympic gold medal. I mean, that's what I set out to do. But it's still a huge honor for me to be recognized for, for what you guys are recognizing me for as an outstanding American. So if there's a, you know, you know, if there's another way to get there, that's that's probably the way you want to get there. But originally, sure. you know. Well, look, you you have a number of gyms, right? You know, fitness gyms, a a clothing line, um, and and you are spending time helping veterans. You also teamed up with Jay Glazer, who is an NFL reporter for Fox Sports, and former Green Beret and Hazard Ground podcast guest Nate Boyer, and you created Merging Vets and Players, MVP. Uh, Now, I have a fortunate pleasure of being part of the Atlanta chapter here. That's how you and I met. Um, is we just launched, you know, a couple of months ago, back in uh, December of 2018. Uh, that said, I, I love what you guys have created. Uh, I, I love the just the environment and the family and the the culture that MVP is about. But why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got linked up with Jay Glazer and Nate and where you guys came up with this idea? Well, Jay and I have been friends for quite a long time i think uh going into the second chuck liddell fight right after the uh ultimate fighter uh you know he's good friends with chuck liddell as well and, sure. and uh i met him on the mats training in vegas i don't remember what he was in town for but he came by the the ultimate fighter training center we you know we were in between shows so we we're in there training and and i hadn't fought yet fought chuck for that second show yet uh, that second fight yet and uh so I met him there, trained with him there. Uh, we hit it off. He's a gregarious, you know, personality and, and just a great guy. And one of those guys that, uh, I don't know, he's just fun to be around. And, and I think that he brings an integrity to what he does, which is why he's come as far as he has with being an NFL insider and all the stuff that he does. He, he's just one of those guys. And uh, so we hit it off immediately. And then, and then down the road, we started training pro ball players using MMA as a cross training tool. We called it MMA athletics. And, uh, you know, obviously had a great facility. We opened the gym in Vegas. It's a big box gym, 24,000 square feet. So we were trying to bring those guys into Vegas and train them in Vegas. And that was a, a bit of a problem for some of them, getting them, keeping them on task and out of the casinos and stuff in Vegas was a challenge. So we ended up training more guys in LA and ultimately, we were using some other guy's gym, uh, and Erlacher and, and Jay kind of decided they wanted to open their own space, and that's when Unbreakable kind of came on board. And it was through that process of training ballplayers that we recognized, uh, and then especially through getting to know Nate Boyer, uh, we recognized when you strip these uniforms away, whether it's the camouflage uniform or, or the shoulder pads and, and padded football pants uh that transition is very difficult for a lot of guys and uh and it was through discussions with nate and uh jay that that 
they realized that they could bring the two groups together because there's a mutual respect between them and they can lean on each other and learn from each other and share and kind of get reconnected, get that locker room back, get that infrastructure back. That's been kind of taken away when you strip away those uniforms. And, uh, that's kind of how MVP grew. And we had, uh, the unbreakable MVP program going really well. We started with like eight guys. I think all of them were homeless. Uh, and within a you know matter of months, guys you know slowly through this camaraderie and and helping each other, um, started coming around. Uh, we ended up you know getting twenty thirty guys a workout, and and then the the huddles, the the chats that we'd have after were just really moving. You know, guys would felt comfortable enough after sweating together to to share the things they were struggling with, and and created this place where guys can come and, and kind of be themselves and get reconnected with people that speak the same language and struggle with the same issues in that transition. And, and, uh, it just became a really, really powerful thing. And I kind of got tired of, of saying, oh, when are we going to open another one? Come on. You know, we need, we need another branch and, uh, being the gym owner in Vegas, I just kind of took the ball or the bull by the horns, if you will. And, and shot show was coming up. Uh, which is a huge law enforcement and military mm-hmm. convention in Vegas. And I said, let's, let's open MVP at my gym. You know, I'll, I'll give the space and the time. And, you know, I, I realize we don't have any funds for any of it, but I don't care. Let's do it. And we just kind of ran with it. So, uh, and that was a huge success. I think, you know, Nate showed up. We had like 60 guys show up at that first workout. Obviously, a lot of those guys weren't indigenous to Vegas. Uh, we ended up with about 20, and now we've grown that to about 40 in the Vegas branch. Um, but, it, you know, again, it feels like family. You know, we speak a particular language. Uh, the average civilian running around hasn't been through the training, hasn't seen or done the things a lot of us have done. And and uh, so this, it's hard for them to understand. They understand when all that's stripped away, what that struggle's like. I don't, we're not normal humans, both as professional athletes or as soldiers. We're, we're a very, very small percentage of the population that's operated at that level, and that makes us special. The change in that narrative, everybody wants to tell you you're broken, there's something wrong with you, they don't recognize that, that there's nothing wrong. We're, we're special. You know, we're, we're unique people on this planet. So uh, getting that narrative kind of driven home, getting these guys thinking differently, getting them reconnected to people that understand that's, that that speak that uh, has been really powerful. It has. Look, and a personal story, you know, the night you came here to open up the Atlanta location, um, after that night was over, uh, and I've told the story a bunch of times after on our Matt Chats, but that MVP shirt that I got that night that we all worked out and poured sweater and everything else, when I got home, I didn't want to take the shirt off. And and the reason and I and I slept in it. It was dirty and disgusting, and I slept in it. And I, and I say that because I felt like taking that shirt off would have removed the connection that I felt in that room. And I wanted to hang on to that, you know. And, and so from from that day on, MVP for me has become a, a big staple of who I am and what I do each week. It's part of the fabric and the culture of my life because, you know, you know this. We say this all the time. When we talk about veterans. It's I don't show up because I mean I show up because it makes me feel good, but. Somebody else in that room may need me without me knowing it, without me having any idea. Somebody in that room may find inspiration in something that I do, and I owe it to my buddies there and the male, other males and females who show up to show up every week because that's really kind of what we were longing for, that, that connection, that brotherhood that we had when we had our uniform on. Now we have a place that we have it back. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's awesome. I, I love that. That's a That's a great perspective, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, and I, I, what was really amazing about that night in Atlanta was was the one ball player that really opened up and and kind of laid out his struggle in, in transition and and as much as uh, we've had more trouble kind of breaking through to the ball players sure um, than we have our guys in in uh, combat fatigue so you know they, they seem to be a little more comfortable uh expressing their vulnerabilities and and the things they're struggling with uh you know they haven't been put on this pedestal as much as these ball players have and so getting those guys to admit you know that that, that they're struggling in transition has been a much bigger challenge so i was really really pleasantly surprised by the ball player that came that night and, and really opened up and that was kind of the first time we've had a, a, a ball player like that uh 
do that. And uh, so I just thought it was a really big step for us as a group. Um, and it was it was just a great night. It was a ton of fun. Also, outside of MVP, uh, you're spending a lot of other time with veterans, visiting military bases and seeing them. Is that something that you want to continue to do and that you, you really see value in and always will continue to do? Absolutely. Um, we were just in uh, Fort Houston, Virginia, uh, at the joint base there, both on the Air Force and the Army side, um, for, for four days in December. It's kind of a morale, you know, right before the holidays. A lot of trainees there, but uh, it was a fight night. And, and uh, me and the guys from MMA Junkie Radio, they've been doing this for about 12 years now. They asked me a couple years ago to come, and I couldn't fit it in my schedule. So this year it fit, and I got to go. And, and we just had a blast. That energy is so infectious, um, so positive. Um, you feel like you're, you know, those guys are sitting there in that uniform going through the, the training. And I remember being in that spot. And so for me to be able to give back to those guys and let them show, you know, let them see that there's life after that, that choice that they made that, 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 you know, life goes on and, and they're in a great place and, and how that decision affected me and the rest of my life. I, I think that's a positive thing. And so, uh, I feel good about going and and rubbing elbows with those guys uh, listen it makes me smile man i mean honestly it does it, it's great to know that that part of of your life you know the military connection to it has never left you and you know it's easy to put it in the rearview mirror especially when you've had success in other areas and, and and not go back but the fact that you still do i think is a testament to your character and, and kind of how much you recognize what the military did for you in your life and, and why it's so important so from uh you know one soldier to another i certainly thank you for that um, let me hit you with a couple of quick ones here before uh, we let you go. And, I, and most of this is about the fighting stuff, but uh, I, I'm, let's just have a little fun here. Uh, okay. Do you remember your your worst defeat, whether it's in college or professionally? Uh, well, I, I remember going to an open tournament. This, this is when I was you know, 18, uh Walked on at Washington State University, went to an open tournament somewhere in the state of Washington with with the with the team, and and just got my ass handed to me by a senior in this open tournament. And I, mean, I just could not, I couldn't score on this guy, and he was just playing with me. Uh, and I remember being so frustrated, uh, like it was just so outclassed at that stage of my wrestling career. But it was a valuable lesson, and and uh, you know, obviously. I feel like embracing those losses. I talked about the 19 and 11 record and, you know, yeah, six championships, but that means I've I've lost it uh, at least five times. Uh, And and those losses were way more important than anything else I experienced. Uh, You know, I never went and watched the tapes of the fights I won. What the hell? Why? (laughs) But I guarantee I watched everyone I lost multiple times trying to figure out what my mistakes were and how I could, how I could have changed that outcome. And, and that made me a better athlete and ultimately I think a better man. So uh, I think facing that adversity, dealing with those losses, picking myself back up, recognizing uh, that the sun was coming up that next day and the people that really mattered don't care. Uh, and, and the ones that care, guess what? They don't really matter. Right. Um, so uh, that was a, a huge transition for me. I think the thing I recognized first moving from wrestling to fighting was that uh, I was overtrained in wrestling. I was that star pupil that coach was going to highlight in the sprints or, you know, was kind of that example of, of work ethic. And, and I think that's something I got from being in the army and, and having to wrestle my way up to even make the all army team. Uh, and it kind of, in some ways became a hindrance because it was continually overtraining and overdoing it and not, not learning to taper and listen to my body. And it wasn't until I started transitioning to fighting and having to fight for 25 minutes, you know, it was a lot different than a six minute wrestling match. Uh, and, tempering that wrestler's mentality and learning to take care of that body. So it, it had the endurance to go 25 minutes as hard as I needed to was, was a very learning thing for me. And, and I realized that was overtrained in wrestling. Who was the guy who hit you the hardest? Well, I've only been knocked out like locked, you know, really knocked out once. And that was the second Chuck fight. 
Um, you know, I, I took a big swing in the left hook and missed and put myself right in position and he drove me with a straight right hand. And that was the first time I ever lost that little piece of time. One second I was there and the next second I was looking up with a bunch of faces over me going, what the hell just happened? Uh, and so it was a, a strange experience to lose that little piece of time. I've been flashed before, even in the third Chuck fight, but he didn't knock me out. You know, the Brock fight, that was a flash, you know, the, the Machida fight, uh, I got kicked in the mouth and, and, you know, it's one of those deals where you, you get hit and then as soon as your butt touches the canvas, it like snaps you back to, you're not really out. You don't really lose consciousness. It's that split second flash of, Oh crap, what happened? And, uh, so, uh, but the only time I was actually really knocked out was that second Chuck fight. Ever cry after a loss? Uh, absolutely. Really? Uh, Absolutely. It's an emotional thing. You put so much time and energy into that performance. Uh, in the 96 trials, uh, after the final, you know, coming up short in the final trial and, and not making the team, I was, I mean, I was, I was devastated. It was, it was tough. And you're there with your coach and, and, you know, your, your loved ones and, and it sucks. It's tough to, you know, but same thing, you know, the, uh, the retirement fight. I retired after the, the third Chuck fight and that was an emotional thing too. I was going through a divorce. It was dragging on It dragged on for a couple of years. Uh, it, it's, it's just, I, was, I just felt like I wasn't myself, uh, you know, in the training environment anywhere. I just felt like I wasn't myself. And so after I, I just, I lost that fight and, and, uh, again, pretty devastated, but, uh, just felt like I, I needed to step away and kind of reset. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be it, if it whatever, you know, I was in my forties. So it wasn't like I was a sure. spring chicken. Yeah. Um, I think it was 42 at the time. And, and, uh, but it just, it just felt right. I needed a break. It wasn't, I wasn't getting the job done, obviously. And, uh, so about 13 months later, I started grappling and, and the dust settled, the divorce finally settled. And I just started feeling like myself again. And, I feel like I had more to do, and then and then the uh, opportunity to come back and fight Tim Sylvia came along, and um, I was off and running after a 13 month break. Yeah, and then finally, victory that meant the most to you. Uh, I think that victory against Tim Sylvia, obviously the you know the first one uh, was such a whirlwind. You know, in, in six months' time, I had my first four fights and, and won a world championship. It was like, what, what just happened? It was crazy that it just, I mean, unfolded that way. Uh, wasn't like I even had time to set goals and, and work for that. I just found myself in this circumstance and on a whim and, and managed to, to come through. And then like I said, when I took that time off to pursue the 2000 games and was kind of in, in at odds with the owners, um, they asked me to come back in, in the fall of 2000 and fight Kevin Randleman for the title. And, uh, again, I knew as soon as I faced another wrestler, it was going to be a much different fight, a much tougher fight. And the question was, who's going to take who down first and put him in that position at disadvantage. And Kevin took me down in the first two rounds. And I spent those rounds on my back finding a way to survive. And thankfully I had spent enough time trying to learn and, and, be effective there and then I took him down in the third round and that was the difference he, he hadn't spent any time working on his you know, on his back and uh, and he didn't get back up so um, I, that was a you know the narrow was back as the heavyweight champion after over a year off um, but that Tim Sylvia fight you know coming back at 44 Fighting him, who's you know six foot eight, we look like Mutt and Jeff in the cage. <laughs> um, I, I I could tell which one you were. <laughs> yeah, right. And then uh, just that crowd—that was the biggest crowd in North America at that time—and they chanted. And and uh, I mean, that's just that whole night was just amazing. And again, one of those times where I don't think anybody gave me a snowball's chance in hell winning that fight. And uh, and it went well. It, it went exactly how I, I hoped it would go. 
Well, on that note, Randy, uh, it's just an honor to thank you so much uh, for spending some time with us. And listen, continued success and, and, and continued, uh, you know, growth for Merging Bets and Players, MVP. It's a fantastic organization. If you guys want to help out, you can go to vetsandplayers.org uh, and, and donate there. You can help start up another chapter in your city, whatever it may be. Uh, but certainly it's, it's a fantastic veterans organization and one that the Hazard Ground is very, very close to. But you know, again, thank you for your candor and your honesty. I, I, I could chat with you for another hour easily, but uh, obviously you have things to do and a very busy individual. But I certainly appreciate your time and certainly appreciate you uh, uh, be willing to sit with us and, and give us your story. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on. And, uh, you know, anything we can do to continue to connect guys that have taken that oath and worn that uniform, I think it's important. And uh, we're going to keep knocking it out and spread spread this thing and it's been great to have the NFL behind us and the Bellator behind us helping us do, you know, fund some of these pop-ups and get some of these new branches up and running. So it's been really, really cool. And it was a pleasure to meet you. And again, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Randy Gator, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You bet. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Angie's List is now Angie, your home for everything home. Angie still has the same top pros and reviews you've counted on for more than 20 years. Only now, you'll also get access to all the tools you need to make your home a happy place. Inside, outside, big or small, Angie helps you find the right solution for whatever you need done, all from your phone. It's simple to find upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. You can even search pricing guides to see what others paid for similar jobs and easily compare quotes from top local pros to make sure you're getting a fair price. From lawn care to repairing the AC to the project of your dreams, Angie has your home projects handled from start to finish. Plus, when you book and pay through Angie, they'll cover your project up to the full purchase price plus limited damage protection with their happiness guarantee. Make your home an Angie home. Check out Angie.com today. And for more on the happiness guarantee, go to Angie.com forward slash happiness hyphen guarantee dot htm.